Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Some upbeat music for today's guest, who is uh, quickly becoming one of my favorite characters, an irascible character in all venues, wherever I encounter him online, in cyberspace. We have yet to meet in person. We just got back from doing an inside tour of a volcano in Iceland. Maybe we'll get to that. We're talking to Lee Cronin. He is professor. He is the chair, the Regis chair of chemistry at a renowned university, the University of Glasgow, where there have been some scientists. Maybe we'll talk about social media and a famous scientist from there. I believe uh, James Clark Maxwell or not far away, perhaps. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Lee, how are you doing today across the world? Did you survive the volcanic trip? It looks like you held up pretty good. You got a little bit of a tan. You got a Volco tan. We did get a Volco tan. I was lucky to get the volcano not in cloud, but in daylight, in sun, and erupting. So it was brilliant. Yeah, those, some of those drone videos that you shared on Twitter, and Lee is a prolific tweeter, and not just about science, although there's plenty of hard science there, but also about philosophy, academia, um, and supporting um, young people in science, which I really love. And he takes to heart what I believe is our uh, is our moral obligation, Lee. I think you share this, that scientists have an obligation to share what we do with the public because the public pay for our, 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 uh, basically our, our adventures, right? So we, we, let's be honest, you'd be doing this for free as would I. Um, so anything we get is above and beyond what we really have a right to expect. Agree or disagree? I agree. It is expensive though. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I want to talk about academia as an industry in, in just a little bit. But I want to begin with a uh, recap, and I'll put a link to our conversation or the conversation that you graciously provided for my video, Why is DNA Twisted?, where you make a very substantial and and delightfully received cameo appearance. And it's to talk about your, what I felt were provocative comments on chirality. But what do I know? I'm just a simple physicist. I'm not a chemist. First of all, we always hear this derogatory thing from, from physicists like Dirac that you know, his equation explains all of chemistry and most of biology, or, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, what, how do you react to such statements? I think that um, physics is about to change because physics right now, as Pose, cannot uh, explain life. And I think that physics, chemistry, and biology are actually the same study. And I think Dirac is actually saying about um, his equation can't achieve it for reasons we can discuss, and it's to do about the operational memory associated with that equation. But physics is changing, and I think chemistry and biology need to change with it as well. When you say that uh, it needs to change to accommodate life, would it be something new, like a hybrid in biophysics or something, or would we really change you know, the equations of general relativity? Um, I think... The latter, but I'm not really qualified enough yet. Um, and I would say that there are physics does the job really well, describes the universe really well, but it doesn't really explain us. But that's not enough yet because the gaps are not substantial. But there are some kind of um, some gaps which are probably above my, not necessarily just my pay grade, but also my training. 
and I don't like to kind of talk about beyond my training, but as a chemist, I like the second law, but the second law, I don't understand why the universe has to have a second law. And I don't understand why physicists can think there should be an origin of the universe, but yet they can't accept time as a thing. And so when you look at Dirac and time, you understand that they didn't get the story. They only understand it's only uh, post-reductive. Um, uh, it doesn't predict the future. So we need to understand how life emerges from dead stuff, from low memory stuff, from the fundamental particles going up. And I think because physics isn't able to do that yet, there's a gap. And I'm not saying that physics is wrong. I just always wanted to be a physicist, but I was never smart enough at school. And I'm wondering if they might let me in. Do you have any cool uh, quotes from chemists, you know, kind of uh, dunking on physicists or is it only, does it only go in one direction? No, I mean, I think chemists think they're the central science, but I think that chemists do the, think they do the real material science, again, because there is all this tacit knowledge. But I, I don't really like to make it a competition because I think the, the, the superiority complexes that some people have is anti-science and anti-the um, um, discussion, where I think, you know, some people, very senior physicists you've interviewed, you've had on your podcast, are not don't make things impenetrable, but they are so sure of the standard or the core model that they're not open to revision. So I want to think one thing that I think that is really important is that Lee Smolin is correct about time. And chemists have time built in. Time is a thing. Time comes before space. Right. Where for physics, time is an add-on. It's something you have to use later. And that's a, and that I think where is one of the new one of the small kinks in the in the in the armor that really i would like to get into as a chemist i can usefully contribute to rather than saying relativity is wrong and i've got a better spirit a better theory of gravity which is clearly untrue i don't <laughs> uh yeah especially after your drone fell into the volcano caldera that was embarrassing <laughs> uh your exploit exploits with gravity but uh, i think you're right you know physicists almost view atoms as a nuisance you know it's almost it would be better cleaner nicer if atoms didn't exist right um <clears throat> time is somewhat more uh problematic as you say there are people that have statements about time as as you noted um and, and lee smolin has an idea about time and um and i almost feel like time might be like consciousness like we're not ever going to develop a really solid foundation uh for either one it's, it's basically pointless when you hear about things uh in entropy the past hypothesis, when you hear about, you know, these are, these are just like last gasps. And I want to get into that when we talk about religion, because obviously religion has a much easier way of establishing initial conditions than physics, math, or, or, or chemistry. But, but you're absolutely right. And I think you have this way of looking at things that is very foundational on one hand, but very, um, very grandiose in a good sense, in that you're looking at these big picture topics. And I think you know, I really didn't appreciate until you and I started our discussions that, you know, time is really intimately connected to these atoms that are so, uh, uh, so, so pernicious to physicists in, in that we really wouldn't have a way of distinguishing the past from the future. Well, we always talk about a pendulum, you know, swinging back and forth. Can you tell me where the pendulum swung back and started swinging? No. Can you tell me if the movie's going in forwards or reverse? No, you can't tell me that. Uh, unless you look at their infrared signature and you see, well, these things are warming up in, in an atmosphere. Now, if there's no atmosphere, you still can't determine the arrow of time. But we put these things in by hand and, and it sort of feels like it is becoming, you know, hopeless or pointless. Uh, and that the more we hear about it, the, the more we're getting back to fundamentals, so to speak. But then everything kind of has to emerge by fiat. So what do you think is the ultimate, um, if, if chemistry were separate from physics, 
where would chem- what would chemistry tell us just as chemistry without relying on physics or time and uh, what would it tell us about the origin of life and maybe maybe first of all what is life if you were a chemist <laughs> uh not okay uh, okay well, there's, a, there's a lot there yeah, I, I think the time question isn't isn't hopeless, but I think that's I sense that's another podcast. So let's just restrict ourselves to chemistry. I would say what chemistry is able to do is to record configurations, what's happened in a previous point, and because of the way that combinatorial explosions happen, that those combinatorial explosions basically start to provide an active memory. I would say the, the physics has a very low memory to do stuff with. Then chemistry gives you a bit more memory. And so that means you can connect atoms together. You can make molecules, you can make polymers, you can put in sequences, and they can read out current conditions, the environment, and then something about the environment causes those molecules to be challenged, to be burned, turned back into their constituent atoms, or to survive that selects or that attrition and and maybe somehow act on the other molecules. So what you get is this interaction between matter that's undergoing an uh, increase in the number of bits associated with its history. And then this is what we don't understand. What I think chemistry can offer physics and then maybe biology is that life is not an on-off switch. Life seems to be a continuum of um, uh, information that is collected in a molecular memory that is collected in the past and then can act in the future uh, um, to basically open up the state space. So it's almost why, and that's why my notion of time goes back to physics, because suddenly uh, uh, physics without chemistry has no future in terms of the state space doesn't increase. Chemistry does something weird to the, the, what, um, Stuart Kaufman and Sarah Walker and others would call the adjacent possible in, in that you, there are things you can imagine or the molecules can get access to. Just, just merely the act of having access to those configurations allows other things to be possible that weren't possible before. This is a really hard concept. And to start to get there, we have to make the transition from chemistry to biology. But let's keep with chemistry. Why is it that chemistry might give the answer to the origin of life? Well, it seems to be that I would say something heretical, even though I'm supposed to be a chemist, I would say that origin of life has, on Earth has nothing to do with chemistry per se. It's just the lowest level which life could emerge uh, in a substrate seems to be with atoms connected together on Earth. That's all we know. So that means we have covalent bonds, non-covalent interactions, and we can start to have a memory of the past to unravel the, the present. And then at some point, when all when the attrition in the environment, you've got the erosion, things being protected, um, you've got molecules basically being burnt, molecules becoming bigger and bigger, but then how do those molecules become functional? When they can work together in networks, maybe in a cellular object, maybe in a soap bubble, maybe in a piece of lava, suddenly you have a network. And if that network now can be propagated from one space to another, could that be the first kind of evolutionary dynamic? In fact, does evolution transcend biology it gets instantiated with the bond. And so I think that chemistry starts to evolve, to discover selection and then evolution producing biology. And that's why the origin of life is such an interesting and contentious question. Because it's like you and I saying, ah, oh, let's have a debate about, first of all, we just imagine there's nothing in the sky. We can't see anything except our sun. And we look up and say, hey, Brian, 
How did that form? And you're like, well, there's only one sun, isn't there? Right. We need to work out the precise conditions. How much hydrogen? What was the nucleation site? What was collapsing? And we'll be obsessing about whether there was any helium or anything else coming in and maybe chucking some other elements. But then suddenly someone takes a shroud off and you see stars everywhere. And if you're really lucky, you see stars being born and dying every day in the universe. And suddenly you can think statistically. And I wonder if the problem, the origin of life is we're talking about a single event where we need to be looking at in the universe and say, where's life popping up? Where's life dying out? What are the characteristic controls? And how is it instantiated? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, these things always bring up the classic chicken or egg um, conundrum. And I figured out, I actually solved it, Lee. I solved the chicken and egg because based on the advice of my, uh, my 10-year-old, he said, Dad, just order a chicken on Amazon, order an egg on Amazon, and see which comes first. Then you'll know. <clears throat> uh, but uh, but in reality, yeah, these one-off things. And what's the other one-off uh, origin story? It's, of course, the origin of the universe. What's another origin story? Origin of consciousness. These things where we only have one, you know, exemplar, one, you know, sui generis uh, event, <clears throat> process, uh, concept, or or instantiation. You're right. Um, and so I think some of these things are are destined forever to the the you know the dustbin of of kind of like well they were really obsessing about something that's meaningless and maybe we won't know that till the twenty third century it doesn't stop us from writing papers and getting you know tenure and stuff like that but um, what is the simplest thing that's alive I mean I hear sometimes a virus is alive maybe it's not I hear AI from my friend Max Tegmark is alive or something but what is the simplest thing that's alive. So I, I, I would say that that is the wrong question, right? Because I think the thing is, as I, a virus is definitely um, alive when it's in your cell. And I think um, my robotic lawnmower is definitely a looks alive when it runs around its electric field and appears to make decisions. It's not sentient, but it is, isn't it? The robotic designer puts some sentience into it. And so what we're doing is we're thinking about the lineage of life in the wrong way. Life is not an isolated phenomena. Life, um, as my colleague, I think Sarah Walker would say, is a planetary phenomena. So what that means is the planet somehow was able to start producing selection on a planetary, and the same with consciousness, actually, and we'll go through that. So you have the origin of life or the, the development of complexity, starting the evolution, starting to get module dependency built in, robustness, because an astronaut... If you're an ast if Bezos was an astronaut, but that John Grunsfeld, a friend of mine, was an astronaut, real astronaut. He fixed the Hubble a few times. In fact, he came to my Regis inauguration and showed the video. We should never have an astronaut come to you, you know, when you're giving a lecture because they just I mean it was brilliant. But what it, what John and I were debating a lot is like when the astronaut is in space, is the astronaut alive or dead? Well, right. functionally, the metabolic the astronaut is alive, but when the oxygen runs out, the astronaut is dead. And if the astronauts had no children on Earth and they can't get back to Earth and have a family, their lineage is gone. And so what we've got to do is stop. Um, I think we are asking the wrong question about if there's any uh, simplest unit of life. I think it is a continuum and, a, and there is various module dependencies. So obviously a bacterium, some bacteria are pretty good. The Cyndia bacteria made by Craig Venter, was barely alive. It had to have all the support system. It had to have amino acids provided to it. He said it was like minimal life, but it wasn't. It was kind of a souped-up virus. 
Um, but our viruses are light. And so I think the question to be replaced is say, not is something alive or not, but was it produced by evolution? So the AI we have, of course it was produced by evolution. The human programmer built it. Okay, of course. And I, and I think when we start to change the question from what is living to what is evolved, the question becomes much more clarifying and substantial. And we get away from almost a metaphysical religious discussion to a how can we test for evolution? How can we test for information? How can we test this lineage of possibility? But is that tantamount to, as I say, giving up? Because at some level, you know, at least in, in many people's minds, maybe not in a proper scientist's mind, you know, the most interesting question is not, you know, <clears throat> which came first, the chicken or the egg. It's, uh, it's, it's essentially, you know, how did the DNA or how did the first living, whatever you consider, that thing that kicked off uh, the evolutionary process. What was that? What was it? Was it pure molecules in motion? Was it some assembly like John Conway would develop in in, in the computer? What? Uh, because the claim, of course, as you know, it, it is it does devolve into into debates about origins and then originators, uh, i.e., gods. Uh, so you know, isn't is isn't that kind of shifting the goalpost or the right? No, no. Let me pull it back. No, no. I'm not dismissing. I'm saying. Life is like the so the emergence of life in the universe should my feeling is my hope is my intuition is okay these are all unqualified we all qualify them um, as obvious and simple as the the birth of stars so again let's not obsess about whether a, there's a single star what I mean is what do we need on a planet for the planet to become evolving and living I'm not saying so I'm actually saying something far more general saying. It's a bit like I'm trying to characterize the force of selection in the universe, not as in a physical force, but a memory, right, going forward. Um, I think the or look, obsessing about the origin of life on Earth is interesting as much as obsessing about the origin of our sun. Where, how, do, how do stars form? Where do they form? Right. How can we find them? What's the metric? And that, that's what I'm – so I'm not widening – in fact, I'm narrowing the goalpost to say, does it evolve? Can we get it there? Putting life on Mars, really human life on Mars, really complicated. What about putting an origin of life bomb on Mars and making our own Martians, right? What about making life on the moon, um, but not trying to force life there to say, what resources, what do we need to do to the stuff so it actually can emerge as a And I'm not saying you can't have more than one life emerging on the planet at the same time. Sure. There's just redundancy built in. Mm -hmm. No, and uh, just to remind you know, some of the listeners, I'm sure you know this, uh, Charles Darwin, a man of some renown in the origins uh, of uh, species, at least, he wrote in to his friend, he wrote, uh, it is mere rubbish to consider the origin of life. We might as well consider the origin of matter. And, and of course, you know, my colleagues and I work on that every day and we understand the process by which matter came into existence, but we don't understand the fundamental conditions that were initiative of the origin of matter. In other words, we understand the processes like you mentioned with the sun and the gravitational collapse and so forth, but we, we understand the properties of Big Bang nucleosynthesis. I've done a talk about that on the podcast, but, um, but we haven't really gotten to the initial condition. Even inflation is not time equals zero. And I think those things captivate, but again, it may be, 
it may be kind of the wrong questions to ask. One question I found very provocative in your contribution to my video, why is DNA twisted? We'll put a link to it here or maybe here, um, whatever handedness I need to use, uh, it was that your claim is that uh, the question of whether or not you know, chirality is needed to produce life is really not a good one. Can you explain that and, and whether or not, well, which came first, the chirality or the life? The life or the process that gave rise to sufficient symmetry breaking to choose for chirality. And I think I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, the, the reason for me saying this is, to, is actually based upon actually relatively good statistical physics and chemistry. In the universe, if you have a process, well, there's two things you can do, or three things. Number one, you can have a process that produces stuff that isn't chiral. And then a process can happen to make it chiral, but then you have equal hands. Or you can have a process that will make an excess. That process to make an excess, as we know from the, from the way the physical interactions require lots of contingency, circularly polarized light, will produce things in very low concentrations. So what is more likely? A process of some kind of cosmic chiral source or the fact that the process of selection happenstance in, a, in an inorganic environment just so happens um, to favor one, one process over another over many events. And it's a bit like a, a cook flicking a coin. It's a bit like me saying, hey, Brian, I'm going to give you a coin. The more you flick this coin, the more, like you, the more heads you're going to get. So keep flicking it, and after a while, you'll go from you know, equal heads, tails to just heads. Or to say, here's a coin, flick it, you're always going to get heads. You're going to go, oh, hang on, how did this happen? Why, where did that information come from? And I think the problem with requiring chirality at the beginning is somehow requiring us to get a really large amount of information. Here's why. For physicists, it's easy to imagine having a left or right-handed process in, in your, if you're looking at EM wave or something. In chemistry, if you're looking at a molecule, you've got a left or right-hand side, but think of the energy and the information that goes into mm -hmm. selecting the molecule separating it from the mixture and enriching it and going around in a cycle and doing that and continuing to do that. And when you think about the state machine or the evolutionary machine that's required to do that, the statistics doesn't add up. It can't happen spontaneously. It's like asking for an, a broken egg to, to rebuild itself. It could happen if you're a, if you're a very, very optimistic and long-lived statistician, but it doesn't. The second law doesn't allow it. So the reason why I'm very sure that chirality is not needed is we need energy and fluctuations and processes, and that will give rise to a chiral excess as a selection dynamic. Now, why? Well, as life starts to make molecules and configurational spaces searched, there is utility to becoming handed because it's easier to fold. It's easier to plug and play. It's easier to have a uh, a kind of lock and key relationship with the molecules, whereas if all the molecules were disordered, you'd get no selection. So selection produces chirality, and chirality does not produce selection because it's in the wrong... So it's, it's almost teleological in nature. Uh, my question I've always had for a biochemist, or I know you're technically an inorganic chemist, but you dabble a lot in uh, in 
organic chemistry or you know, synthetic uh, uh, synthesis of life. Why is folding necessary? I mean, I always hear it. It sort of seems just like a tautology, like proteins have to fold uh, to activate. And then, but you know, obviously proteins had to be, you know, made originally with, and I, I don't want to get into more anymore. I'm actually f- quite sick of, of eggs uh, and, and chickens and so forth. Uh, they make me, they make me nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, Think about the process of assembly. Let's just say we're going to have a we're going to have a polymer. Let's just say the polymer has got some amino acids, and let's restrict ourselves to a small number. And you want this polymer to fold up, say, into an X or a Y or a Z. Let's just say that. And let's just say the X is good at one thing, the Y is good at one thing, and the Z is good at another. So the, those folds give you with the same atoms. If you fold differently, you get different functions. So it's like a compression. So you're able to use less stuff and just refold it. So that's why proteins are folded. So they can they have different function. So now selection in the environment, this polymer is unraveled in some way, it gets folded by the environment and can be good at protecting, say the, let's say it's in a cell from being attacked by something, or it's good for binding a phosphate or a diphosphate or a triphosphate for an energy currency to basically provide some free energy. And so what you've got is you need to re, re, reuse this material. It's a bit like saying we could make our alphabet bigger. In fact, abandon the need for an alphabet and we'll just basically teach each other words without any compression. But it wouldn't be very efficient and there would be a limited amount of sophistication. We wouldn't be, I don't know, we might be able to say hello and goodbye and food or whatever or emergency, but we won't be able to say much more. So refolding is like the alphabet of biology to basically say more complex sentences and paragraphs so you can do more. And that's all it is. Now, if you have chirality and folding one direction, it's just you don't get disorder. It's a bit like you, you go, it, it, it's a property that you have in, in three-dimensional space that you're much better qualified to express than I am of basically organizing material so they rem, rem, the, the spatial relationship between the objects is conserved such that you can continue to be functional. Whether So your X is good at being as X and your Y is good at being yeah, a Y. Yeah, no, that does. And, that and thank you for that lucid explanation. The, the issue, you know, I want to point out is obviously uh, there are languages like Hawaiian only has 13, uh, 13 characters, 13 letters in the Hawaiian alphabet. And last thing check, we can have great conversations uh, yeah. in Hawaiian that can express all the uh, lavishness and grandiosity of our universe um, with uh, just those 13 letters. Obviously, DNA has four letters, and you could do anything with, with two letters effectively, as you and Sarah have talked about. Um, you know, that this is the ultimate form of compression is, is not, being, um, not being resplendent, but really being compressing into as much information as to as little a space as possible. So maybe, yeah, the folding process can be thought of as a compression, as you say. Um, So that's very, that's very helpful. I want to ask now though, about some of the controversies, again, not to talk about chickens or eggs, but more to talk about um, debates and debating uh, from a purpose of wanting to come to understanding. And I I don't know this guy, Jim Tour, that you guys uh, debated uh, together on Unbelievable. I was on that show with a friend of mine, Steve Meyer. Uh, but I take it you guys don't really see eye to eye. And I always have problems, by the way, Lee, with these, you know, when I talk with my friends in the Christian apology, you know, sort of uh, movement and intelligent designers typically are uh, predominantly dominated by by Christians. And that, you know, it'll start with something plausible, like everything that had a design, you know, had a designer. Then it will have maybe that that designer has a personal stake 
in your life and um, in morality and, and so forth. And then and then Jesus Christ. And, and that's hard for me because I'm a practicing Jew, as you know. Um, but it's uh, it's a different uh, we have different kinds of, of interpretations of things. And just like you have in your textbooks, you know, you have this, um, you know, very, very long thorough footnotes in your papers, your nature paper, which we'll get to, um, is very thorough and, and very well documented because you can't understand it without that. It's not enough to just write this and so forth. And so in Jew- Judaism, we have this other tradition called the Talmud, which contains all the hyperlinks uh, to, to all the information and, and otherwise it's almost ununderstandable. And so I find it very difficult to talk to people um, who are dogmatically, you know, uh, wanting to promulgate the Christian apologetics that, you know, will somehow lead the teleology will lead from the Big Bang uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, but absent that, your debate, which did involve James Tour talking about Christianity and so forth, uh, uh, was very fascinating to me. But um, but what I always hear are criticisms of, of his point, and then there'll be retorts. So he'll say, you know, you can't prepare these life in a lab, uh, and you can't use that as an analog. Here at UC San Diego, we had Stanley Miller and Harold Urey. They worked together here at UCSD. Uh, and, uh, of course the Miller-Urey experiment, uh, is, it was very, it's still used as kind of like proof that life can spontaneously emerge from the conditions on the early earth. Now we know the conditions of the earth were not like the Miller-Urey experiment. That's okay. You know, they still accept the basic premise could happen. Uh, but tell me, where are we and where is this debate going? Uh, they say you need information, that the basis of life is somehow there's some information and there's no source of information without a mind. What was that debate with Jim Tour centered on? So I think you summarize it really well. Uh, and the way I come at these debates to say is I'm, I'm, I, I have a lot of religious friends and a lot of people I like to talk to, and I kind of have a rule. And, and maybe it's a really crude philosophic rule and say, if you can't falsify it, it's not really science, right? And there's lots, and it kind of all the borderline, right? We can, there's a bits there. And I'm saying, if you're coming from a belief point of view, we all have beliefs. And the beliefs you either have to accept until we can work backwards. And there are some beliefs in physics, right? We can't yet falsify, but we're hoping to get there. And what I think Jim was trying to do, what James Tor was trying to do, was to mix up the belief, the kind of that kind of rules of the debate to kind of kind of kind of create a confusion. And I really found that actually quite disrespectful because actually I don't know everything. I don't know why we're here. And and I think that he kind of lost a really important um, a point, right? Where actually origin of life has some big open questions. It's certainly not about where the maker comes, but actually it's about, I think, the Catholic Church realizing that we, you know, weren't the center of the universe and then what we do in physics going on. And I don't, I don't really understand what his point was other than to say, oh, the cell is so complicated, it couldn't arise by chance. And when you go in your lab and you do experiments, you interact in your lab. Therefore, you're cheating. And we're saying, well, of course, we know we're cheating. And that's the point. Some origin of life chemists are actually cheating and they don't realize it. And that's actually stopping us from getting to the real mechanism. Other origin of life chemists are really obsessing about the geology in Earth. And that's really important. And we're kind of missing this bigger question. So there's this obviously in every science there's a debate and physics is about the origin of the universe. And so what Jim was trying to do is to take the debate in, I'm not an origin of life chemistry. I want to make life in real time, inorganic life. Let's go. Let's make a little star in a bottle, right? You know, I want to demonstrate that the process of making life is possible right now isn't somehow weirdly contingent. Um, 
and show it. And then when, if I cheat to do it, I'll say, well, how much did I need to cheat? Could, is this plausible on Mars? Is it plausible on Venus? In the same way that if we made a star in the lab, like I think we have tried to do in, in the fusion labs, to say, oh, is it plausible in the universe, right? It's exactly the same argument. So I think that there are many complex parts, but I think that this using the, the fact the cell is so complicated is really a, forgets one really important thing. It's a real portrayal, actually. It's really nonsensical. And we'll get there. And that is to say this, that life is special on Earth. That, that uh, That's one thing. And it's a one-off and never happen again. What they don't understand is that life on Earth is special. It is a one-off because it's a series of unique events. So biology, my argument, is confined to Earth. There is no biology elsewhere in the universe because biology is defined by the ribosome, DNA, the right helicity, blah, blah, blah. But there's life everywhere in the universe. And when you find an Earth-like planet with the same elements, wouldn't it be wonderful to go and have a look at what solution has been found on that planet? It won't be exactly ours. It'll be different. And I think that that's only when we start to do that in the laboratory and say, hey, Jim, look, we've made life, but it's not what you think. It's another one. Look, isn't that weird? Isn't our ribosome different? And I think when we start to see that, we'll push the debate back more constructively. But kind of origin of life is kind of trapped in this, we must take the car and decompose it and say, where did the steering wheel come from? Where did the door come from? And so there's a lot of different complaints going on there. And I, I think the intelligent designers are being fairly nefarious. Uh, and, you know, and when I realized that, I just disengaged and said, well, look, hey, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm an educated idiot or I'm, I'm not an educated idiot. I'm, I'm educated to understand what I don't know. And what we have to understand is how to reduce that uncertainty. And that's where that debate kind of, you know, I, I don't know what you felt about it, but I felt that slightly, you know, disrespected and, and, you know, it was obviously for his crew, right. For his, for his, uh, um, uh, um people following him. Nevertheless, I think, you know, there's always this, um, you know, God of the gaps pushback on, on the religious, uh, but there's almost an equivalent, you know, God of the multi or, you know, multiverse of the gaps or panspermia of the gaps or Miller Urey and of the gaps. And I, I do feel like the, the, sometimes it can go too far on the other side. And I wonder if you could, you know, steel man, if you were channeling your James tour, it doesn't sound like you want to. Uh, but you know, when you hear about these things like Michio Kaku's new book, the God equation, he was on my podcast. I'll put a link to his episode over here. Um, you know, at the end of it, he talks about, you know, Thomas Aquinas's questions about design and, and he basically says that like evolution created life and, and it doesn't sound like too far off from what you were saying. I don't believe that you, you know, I think it's semantic in some level, but, um, I think if I could summarize you, it might be, uh, things that are alive are processes that participate in evolution. Either they're the creator of it, uh, they engender it, they manifest it, they instantiate, whatever you want to say, they participate somehow in evolution. However, you know, on their side, they're saying, well, you don't have evolution without information. You have DNA, it has information. You find a watch. It was obviously put together. Even Fred Hoyle, who was a famous, you know, atheist most of his life, he made the 747 argument. He made 
arguments about uh, you know the the um, the fine tuning of as as we know the carbon miracle that that allows carbon to form in this very narrow resonance the Hoyle resonance. Um, so can you steel man their position? I mean, is there anything besides the God of the gaps that, you know, they have going for them? Or is it really, you know, just a matter of time before we as scientists really come up with an answer to these ultimate questions, which I think are deservedly given that title? of. Um, uh, I think you're, you're right. We will come up with a solution in the, to that. And I think it is hard to steel man it, but I'll, I'll do one because I think we should do We'll do one because actually that plays into what I'm trying to do as well in trying to de-anthropomorphize the origin of life studies. So right now we're saying, okay, it's e easy to imagine that once we solve um, for RNA, that basically the problem is done. Okay. And what I would argue from their point of view is RNA is quite a complex molecule and it's hard to get there. And why are we demanding RNA? What we should be saying, because the RNA is saying, no, hey, we don't care about RNA. In fact, we don't care about the molecules at all. What we care about is the process of selection. Selection starts with, you know, quarks. Here it does. Just, there's just not many states to go, right? It's you just, you, as you know, then you get your atoms and then you get your bonds. And when you get bonds, you get molecules. And when you get molecules, you get a combinatorial explosion. And then you can get selection. And as soon as you get selection, you start to kickstart the process of evolution. And what biology is, biology is merely a, an efficient funnel for fast evolution. And it's a bit like the, it's like the slow accretion of information. And I think what we have to do with the steel manning of the, oh yeah, the RNA looks improbable. But then when we realize that RNA is improbable, but we go all the way back, but we don't need information at the beginning. We just need molecules bumping into each other in some rock, some symmetry breaking that occurs naturally, accretion of that, and suddenly random fluctuations turn into information. How? So let's say I randomly push a piece of snow down a hill and it bounces off a wall and builds a snowman. I only recognize that to me a snowman after the fact, right? It's suddenly that random event, but let's say Building a snowman allows a snowman, because it can then, I don't know, tumble over in a certain way, can make other snowmen. And suddenly that rat and that snowman can then go back to the top of the hill and make another one. So when a random process gives rise to a replication randomly that stabilizes that process, so it can go back and then undergo selection through mutation, that's how you get life from nothing. And that is what we have to do in the laboratory. Nothing less than going from, we have to literally break the second law, but we don't. The second law doesn't need to be broken because time exists. And when time exists, you don't need a stupid second law, right? That's the, that's, but you then show this accretion of information and that's how it works. And, and to get away from time and breaking the second law, just provide some energy. So if you have an energy source and stuff, you will get memory over time if you get a combinatorial explosion in molecular space. So that's kind of a way of actually steel mailing it, saying RNA is not the answer, and then showing how chemistry can provide routes to not just one origin of life, but many. And my job, my colleague's job, the job of science, we need to go make life in the lab, many different life forms, not just based on this life we know now, but it will be different. And that's gonna be exciting. If I can go to my lab tomorrow and show that evolution can occur in a completely different system, even if I created it, I think I would be able to convince most skeptics about origin of life 
not that had a religious angle, that the, the phenomena selection is beyond, works beyond um, biology. A round bottom flask, a piece of glass, a cavity, some energy, some stuff. I think no one would deny me that. What do you say to those that say, you know, well, we have no example of life being produced from these uh, situations, even if you were to do it, you know, the Craig Bentner, who's a neighbor, you know, kind of in La Jolla uh, to UCSD, uh, you know, those that say, well, you started with these highly purified reagents that you bought from Aldrich or, or Fisher, and then you put it in a, in a, um, autoclave, you know, test tube and yep. uh, you prepare, it wasn't like Darwin's little warm little pond very much at all. Right. So, uh, what about that objection? Well, well, so that's very important. And that's what I'm saying. Uh, still manning it from the RNA point of view. That is correct. I don't like that. I think that you're, it's too much like saying, um, trying to, you know, understand someone's art exhibit. And I say, oh, they, they, they put this here because of that reason. No, what we're doing in my lab, and this is where Miller-Urey went wrong, right? And this is where Origin of Life actually became a, Origin of Life and astrobiology is still pre-paradigm, right? We don't know what life is. So it's great that people love it and working on it, but we just don't know what it means. It's, po- it's like the same problem as electricity, right? We know there's sparks out there. We know there's charge carriers, but we just don't know what life is. So what I'm doing in my lab and lots of new labs are doing is we are generating the simplest, taking the simplest molecules, so, sim- so least number of bonds, and basically turning them into crap, just baking, t- making tar, just making a mess, and then showing over time, recursively in cycles, that that mess not only um, doesn't get messier, it gets simpler and more complicated. So this is really important. You're saying, well, well, hang on, but isn't a mess complex? Sure, but a mess is um, a mess is not highly complex. It's just a mess. There, so what I mean is, let's say I give you a budget of a trillion carbon atoms. You could just make a trillion, you know, a few hundred thousand molecules. But if suddenly I could take those carbon atoms and funnel them into one molecule to make, say, I don't know, let's say Taxol, which is one of the, you know, a, a natural product from Pacific U tree, which is a very good anti-cancer drug. It's got a very particular structure, beautiful molecule. If I could funnel all that into a complex molecule, then an evolutionary process had to produce it. So what we need, simple stuff, carbon dioxide, methane, hydrogen, milieuri, go for it. Where Miller-Urey went wrong, and we did this in my lab, is they didn't have the Earth's crust. They had no real way of accelerating doing catalysis and no cycles. It was just a snapshot. It was an obvious combinatorial experiment um, for me, not for them. It was paradigm shifting, not to take it away from your colleagues. So now what we need to do is Miller-Urey type chemistry in a random environment, a mineral environment, recirculate, and then see how selection starts and look at that explosion of a mess and say, look, mess. And then keep going, keep going, say, oh, gosh, the mess is simplifying. Less components. But, hey, look at the average complexity of the components. It's going up, up, up. What's going on? And that is the marker that we're looking for in the lab right now, which will indicate that evolutionary dynamic is becoming established. It's akin to, I'll do it in Lego analogy because I love Lego. We make all these, let's make Lego Star Wars, Millennium Vulcans, TIE Fighters, everything. And you say, right. I think the origin of life people just love Star Wars. They say, I'm going to make a Millennium Falcon. You know, that's my template. I'm going to find a way of making there, right? So they're adding in the information. Falcon's a different, is a different uh, series. Uh, the Millennium oh, Falcon, Falcon, I'm sorry. Falcon. <laughs> uh, but then I'm saying, hey, 
Let's have, no, let's have no bias what we want to make. We're going to put all the Lego blocks in a big vat and stir them, and they'll just make a mess. But if you keep stirring and you have a template, suddenly the Lego will accrete and grow. And some of that Lego that happens to replicate itself, as you know in statistical physics, you'll have a phase transition do, 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 around the system, and suddenly you'll start to generate complexity in kind that staircase. And I think that's what we have to do in the lab. Nothing more and nothing less. We have to generate complexity from yes. nothing using energy and stuff. And so you and I talk a lot about, you know, when, when you're my kind of, um, what do you call that guy, Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, uh, you, you kind of provide me some tips to talk to my biology colleagues when they come on the show, and that's really helpful, and you're always respectful about it. You always ask, what's the CRISP test? What's the test for which there will be found evidence to either um, substantiate or refute uh, XYZ's claim. And I've had on a lot of, you know, the uh, physicists that, that deal in traffic in the origin of time, origin of life. And, and you've helped me kind of framework and, and, uh, get the proper framework for some of my questions. I thank you for that. Um, but I want to ask you, um, science by its nature is necessarily tentative in today's age. I want to do a thought experiment with you, uh, take you back to your countryman, a man, a young James Clerk Maxwell, and he's operating in 1864. And he comes up with four equations, which uh, Oliver Heaviside and others would later uh, transmute to the world, literally, uh, and revolutionize our understanding of fundamental forces of nature and the unification of forces as well. And uh, these are, the course, the famous Maxwell's equations. There's, there's four of them, and they're beautiful. Um, now, imagine Maxwell's around, and uh, Twitter somehow was around back then. And Maxwell is there, and he, like you, is a Scotsman who's not f afraid to tweet and uh, and share his his bold opinions and his genius with the world. And so he says, "I have this new theory, and I know what you're going to say, uh, but uh, but the way that it works is there are these little gears." And there are these little whirlpools in space, and there's this ether-type substance, and we don't understand that. Um, and then he would have roundly been laughed out of society, right? And we would have had a complete complete uh, devastating effect on our understanding and progress in physics. Um, you talk a lot about, you know, kind of uh, uh, ideas and how to test them. But imagine we applied the Cronin test to Maxwell in 1864. He would have flunked it uh, because there are no little gears and stuff. And so you would have thrown the uh, the the egg out with the bathwater, right? So, so tell me, Lee, where do we draw this line between necessarily tolerating a theory for some amount of time uh, uh, versus, you know, putting the hammer down early so that we can get onto right thinking in a more proper fashion. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, that's not just a question for kind of, you know, chemistry, it's for all science, right? For all the way we're doing this. And I've been, I mean, um, I've been thinking about this for a very, very long time and worrying for all my, my entire career. I've always wanted to kind of get to this point where I wanted to make a life form and understand I've made it, right? So this is a big problem right now is like, I could go in my lab and say, hey, Brian, just come to my lab. Isn't it cool? We've got chemistry. Everyone will be like, cool, hey, chemistry even looks like you've got some life form. And they'll say, well, I've got this life form. Look, and you'll be like, well, prove it. I mean, how do I know that this has done anything? You're just not faking me out. You haven't you've just added something in. And I think that that's, um, uh, that process that you described, how can we allow the idea to, to be played with. So what is my what is my theory? So my theory is that selection occurs in the universe naturally, but until you make organic molecules, well, until you make molecules that can store information by happenstance, that um, you can't get selection. So what I need is molecules, 
and then I get selection, and selection acts on a combinatorial explosion and then reduces it somehow in a network and starts to produce a dynamic where we can get selection. You're like, rightly, great, great idea. You know, ether cogs, how do we do it? So what I realized many years ago, and I and I, I suppose I invented the theory much longer ago than I'd actually realized. I invented a theory called assembly theory, and it came like this, which was... Um, um, I got really fed up with information theory in physics and computer science um, because everyone kept using the observer. The god in the physics was the observer looking down and counting and assigning states. And I was like, well, imagine the observer emerges. So what I wanted to try and do is to say, okay, if I, wanna, if I find a molecule, um, how do I know that molecule? And this is the bad word, but we're now because we're talking about Jim Tor and the steel, man, uh, steel manning things, how do I know the molecule has had a creator or has been created by an evolutionary dynamic or is produced randomly? And this actually, this was a question I paid, played with for many, many years. And what I realized, and I'll take a segue. So I'm going to go back because the problem is this. We have some people saying there's phosphine on Venus as evidence of life. Could be. But does life on Earth produce phosphine? No, not really. Not at all, in fact. Not proven. So it's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. It's, we've found it associated with my, basically phosphine is produced when you have a reducing agent and some phosphate. So they've found phosphine in fe bird feces and in some bacterial mats. Of course, it's reducing agent. You add it to phosphate, it makes a smell. That's not the same thing as saying biology makes phosphine because it doesn't. Biology makes carbon dioxide, oxygen, methane, all sorts of things, but it doesn't really make phosphine. It might by accident make phosphine, but not by design. So then you've got, but then there's an argument, right? Let's not dismiss it. Let's say phosphine is a viable biomarker. Then let's talk about the Viking mission. Then let's talk about arsenic DNA. All these things suffer from the same problem. So I was inspired by the CERN um, machine. How they were brilliant, right? We've got this thing, we've got this like, theory of you know, the way the universe works, right? There's the standard model. Play with the standard model a bit, and we can simulate how that standard model may work. Now, if we've got a simulation, we can build an experiment. We'll build an experiment, and we know what energy range to go to. And then for like 30 or 40 years, like, yeah, good energy range. Thanks for that 2 billion euros or Deutschmark or pounds. Can you give us another five, and we'll get the Higgs? You know, we'll go to 128 whatever GV, and we'll find it. And I was like, oh, gosh, we don't have a standard model of life. We don't have a, so we don't have a theory of life. We don't have a model. We don't have a machine. So I've taken a bold step and said, right, my model is selection in the universe, in molecules. I'm now going to say, how much do I need to simulate it? And I'm going to think about to then uh, have a simulator. To, and then I'm going to make a machine in my lab, and I need a detector. In your case, it was detecting a peak energy spectrum or whatever. I'm going to detect complexity. How do I do it? And that's how we came with the molecular complexity idea. And I worked backwards. I said, right, I'm going to take molecules that I can only find in biology. Let's take natural products. So if we take something like Taxol, Taxol's relatively big molecule. And the formula is like, let's say, let's say 62 heavy atoms. And they have to be in one configuration. The chance of you getting those atoms together in that configuration is basically infinitesimally small, one less than one in a mole. So what that means, if you find taxol um, um, in any detectable amount, there must be a process that made it. 
And so, and can I then detect the complexity of taxol? Well, yeah, I use an instrument I made in my lab. It uses a thing called a mass spectrometer, and you cut the molecule up into fragments. It's a bit like you take an iPhone and hit it with a hammer gently enough to not destroy it, but to break it open so you can count the pieces and go, oh, there's something in there. Boom, count, break it. And you can select the iPhones. So what I've come up with is a way of determining the intrinsic complexity of a molecule and um, making a metric for it. And that's what we, we did for astrobiology. And we're now using this system to go and look for life in the lab. And I'm pretty confident that we will generate evolutionary dynamics and then larger that scale. So, so how we tested it, I'm kind of jumping a bit. We had this theory for the, um, for the complexity of molecules. It's intrinsic. You do not need to know anything about the molecule. It just tells you about the number of different bonds. So you can select the molecule. That's one thing. Then we then went and looked at, and we just took 6 million compounds from around the planet and just characterized them. And we then took a load of sample. We then went to the lab and sorry, got molecules from, of all the complexity scale and measured it using mass spec, did the actual experiment, did the theory. We got a nice correlation. Then we then got a load of samples from outer space around the Earth and biology. NASA gave us samples, and they even blinded it because they didn't believe us. They gave us Murchison, and we used the detection system, and we found, long story short, that everything that was abiotic or dead had a low complexity or assembly number, less than 15, and stuff that was alive had an assembly number going all the way up. And it almost had like a threshold on Earth. And getting that paper published was so difficult because everybody, all the chemists said, this is impossible. We don't believe. We don't believe that complexity, you need, complexity can happen for free in chemistry. So I say to the, it's like saying, so the chemists were saying to me, the referees were saying, oh no, we're, we're allowed to break the second law. You can get information for free. So I, was, I actually found myself saying to the editor, hey guys, we have an, in, we have an intelligent design problem in chemistry. Because chemi synthetic chemists are put, and, I, and obviously they're not. It is a cultural thing. And chemists are used to making molecules. To say to a chemist, molecules on earth that, that, that aren't touched humans or biology hands are really simple is really a hard thing to grasp or accept. So that's kind of how we've got around it. We've, I've had to make my own theory, my own model, and the molecular complexity is now out there and people are hopefully going to try and break it and use it. So in uh, that fascinating same vein, you, your group, your collaborator, Sarah Walker and others, you're the last author on it, but maybe you should you should talk about what that means uh, in, in science. But it's called Identifying Molecules as Biosignatures with Assembly Theory and Mass Spectrometry. Um, this is uh, a paper in Nature, which starts off with the word alien in it. And what do you make, first of all, Lee, of all this fascination that is in the zeitgeist about alien life? Yeah, I think, well, there's, there's a really interesting cultural debate going on right now in like the with the u.s releasing all these reports and and what i try to do and talk to people about ufos and aliens is to say well hey hang on um is it likely that ufos have been visiting us maybe not but let's not be too dismissive but let's understand what it is that you are interested in and i think rather than me being as dismissive to the ufo kind of believer as to the intelligent design believer and say hey what are you looking for? Why are you interested? Because the, the thing that I miss, I think maybe the thing I missed with Jim is to not just to argue from a point of view of science is going to solve the problem to say, ah, oh, 
you want meaning as much as I do. And in the UFO, I think the UFO thing right now is exposing you know, people kind of how they react. And let's say we are successful. We understand, let's say we understand the origin of the universe, where life is likely to be, and we find new life forms. How is that going to, or we make it on Earth? How is that going to affect humanity and our society? So I actually think that the current zeitgeist is really interesting, although I think it's unlikely that UFOs are visiting Earth for all sorts of good reasons that you've debated. And I, I'm certainly, um, you know, I'm not going to say that things are, the impossible is really impossible because let's not do that. That would be against the podcast after all. But I would like, <laughs> with what I think I like to think about in the bounds of possibility. So I think that people really want to know this stuff. They want to know if they're alone in the universe. They want to know if aliens are exist. So if I can use, if I can make an alien in my lab, like as in an alien, as in a new life form that uses different elements and looks different, that will be profound. If I can then help NASA find, or ESA or anyone find life in the solar system, most likely in the outer solar system, I'm willing to bet um, your house, <laughs> not necessarily my house, uh, on the fact that chemistry will be different. Really sure. And if we find that, it's going to tell us something really profound about our place in the universe and our own meaning. And I think, you know, Jim and you and myself and my colleagues, we're all entitled to our own little bit of meaning. But let's share it in such a way that we can expand the horizons because we need to understand where humanity is going. If life is a planetary process and global warming is a result of everything that's going on, how can we work together to avert the coming problems associated with it? How can we do all these sorts of interesting things? So the fundamental science, meaning that we get paid for, what we would do for free, as you pointed at the beginning, suddenly becomes really relevant to people saying, well, what am I? What am I doing here? Um, and I love doing that. I mean, I love that debate. And I think it's important to be open-minded and respectful. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, let's talk about this paper. We only have a few minutes left uh, in this fascinating conversation. Uh, conversation. We're going to have many more, I hope, Lee, maybe in person someday. Um, identifying molecules as biosignatures, uh, leading off with the word alien in the very first sentence, which is rare. I, I mean, I've had a lot of papers rejected from, from nature. Um, maybe I should put, um, put aliens in the title uh, or in the abstract. Um, talk about this, um, making de novo life in the laboratory. And what is this uh, possibility uh, that you and Sarah and your wonderful team uh, have have really maybe unlocked for for potential use for the first time in history. Yeah, I mean it's a it is a big team effort, and I'm I think it's really interesting the way it's come about because I think that um, I, I I like kind of the collaboration with Sarah's team because they were they're just really interesting in life as a phenomena and and willing to kind of take a step back, and then my own team when I developed assembly theory. I think I developed it on my own, right? It's the one thing I developed one day walking down the street and about, and then I had to then work and it was just one of those ideas and ideas are cheap. We all know that. But then with my team, they then basically wrote the algorithms, did the mass spec data. We validated the theory with Sarah's team. We got NASA involved. So all of that teamwork really came together nicely and it allowed us to really put down three key points. We allowed to come up with a new theory of assembly, which I think is going to be, it's not just about, it's going to replace entropy right? We're going to stop using entropy and we're going to start looking at assembly, which is going to really mess people up for a while. I'm not saying entropy. Entropy just tells you what you lost. Assembly tells you what you have. 
which is kind of cool because there is no in assembly theory what it does it basically i haven't actually explained what the what the theory is the theory says if i've got a given complex object um or if i've got a given object and i break it in, into its atoms being atoms or lego bricks what is the shortest and unique way i can get to that object right by doing the least number of symmetry operations so and so and I'm allowed once I know a piece of a make a motif that exists in the memory the lineage. So it's a bit like um, so the way you would take take the word abracadabra. You then I actually got the word abracadabra into one of the figures of the paper and I show that abracadabra you can actually make by putting all the letters there or you can say take an A a B an R an A and then put it all together and show the assembly of abracadabra. So what assembly theory is it's like what you'd call Kolmogorov complexity which is like, look at how what is the smallest program we could use to write it, but it does something different. Kolmogorov complexity requires an observer. What assembly theory says is what is the minimum steps I need to make on a, on a random walk? So it gives you a lower bound to make the molecule, so the number of steps. So what we did probabilistically is if you do more than 15 steps, unique steps, the chances of you doing that in the molecular space is less than one in a mole. So a mole is the number of molecules in a mole of, say, of the compound. So if you take water, the molecular weight of water, because it's H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen, is 18. 18 mils of water is 18 grams. In 18 grams of water, there are 6.022 times 10 to the 23 molecules. That's a lot of molecules. So with a molecule assembly number 15 or higher, there would be only one molecule in that, in that mole that would have that assembly number. So that then allows us to give us the probability. And then we then did the probability, got the model, and then went into the lab and actually developed the experiment. And we, in this paper, we use mass spectrometry, but we also showed it can work for infrared. Now, this is where suddenly the, the astronomers start to go, oh, we can start to observe infrared of exoplanets. Maybe we can start to look at high assembly in exoplanets one day and stop worrying about, you know, one-off markers. So this kind of entire paper allowed us to say, posit a theory, have a model, and then have a test. Applied as a life detection, but really Sarah and I are going much deeper. Assembly theory tells you about how physics turns into chemistry and how chemistry turns into biology. Mm. That is fascinating. And of course, the ultimate issues of life and Lee, we could talk for hours, but I don't want to miss the final thrilling three questions that I ask all my treasured and uh, guests that honor me with their presence. And so I will now ask you, Lee, are you ready to go into the impossible? Yes. All right, my <laughs> friend. We begin with uh, the end of your life, which will happily, hopefully not occur maybe ever, but certainly not until the biblical age for righteous people, which is 120 years. Uh, that's the age Moses lived to, for those of you questioning at home. Uh, and I want to ask you, when you depart this mortal coil, as the bard said, uh, what would you put in your ethical will, not your material will, where all that funding goes to your, your students so they can keep the lab going, uh, but where would you rank, what would you put in your ethical will for the influence to the betterment of humanity after you're gone? 
Um, I would like to make sure or put in my ethical will that enough information that would change the future of the universe, right, in terms of the ability to make humanity more sustainable on Earth or to make sure we could generate um, origin of life algorithms so we can make sure that our culture or some, I, you know, I'm turning into Ridley Scott, right, that terrible movie Prometheus, but uh, like finding some way of changing the future state of the universe in a way that makes life more exciting for our children and their children and more sustainable, but I think making it exciting because what life seems to do is it likes to make things more complicated and more interesting. So if I could do anything to make that um, happen in a good way, uh, rather than the, destruct- you know, the destruction that some people do, that would be my, that would be my dream. And maybe that dovetails nicely into the next question, which is about the uh, far future of all of humanity, not just specifically uh, those of your biological and ideological progeny. And that has to do with what Arthur C. Clarke had in the Sentinel uh, monolith, these kind of strange, almost menacing objects that, uh, that persist and are first encountered by early hominids in the plains of Africa and then later are found on the moon. And we don't really know what they're for. Maybe they're a time capsule. Maybe they're a warning. Um, what would you put on such a billion-year-long-lasting time capsule? What was the culmination, perhaps, of, of, of scientific knowledge that has been accrued that you would like to preserve for all time? Um, I, so I think this is a bit weird, but I saw it the, the, somehow I'd like to capture in some kind of motif the ability for a life form to take a selfie. <laughs> because I think that consci- we don't yet understand consciousness, but isn't it interesting that we all like selfing selfies? So if I could somehow immortalize we'll do that TikTok. Now. I'm doing that now. I'm going to put it on TikTok. Put, I'm going to put a TikTok or the equivalent of TikTok on that monolith. I don't think you've ever had an answer like that before. But I think <laughs> no. the ability to self-reference. If I could find an object in the universe and say, my gosh, this object is the product of self-reference. Oh, no, I'm not alone in the universe. It wasn't alone. The universe did something for me. It's like uh, John Archibald Wheeler's universe looking at itself with an eyeball over the letter U. Yeah, exactly. Which is, an, which exactly. is a diagram so simple, even I can recreate it on occasion. Lee, the last yeah. question involves the name of this podcast. And now we're going to go backwards in time, violating the second law of, of thermodynamics that you love and treasure so much. No, no comment. Okay, going backwards in time, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's third law states, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's the origin of my podcast name, where I am here at UC San Diego, the co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. I want to ask you, Lee, what mysterious aspect of life perplexed you as a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, whatever? What epiphany, what great moments of clarity would you tell to your former self to give you the courage to go into the impossible? Advice to your former self. Um, I think, yeah, I've taken the advice, but a little later is having more confidence to um, expose my mathematical intuition when I was much earlier, because actually it's quite, although I'm relatively reasonable chemist now, I think it's quite hard for people to take my graph theory seriously, because it's something that mathematicians do when they're really young. And for someone to have a new insight in their late 40s is kind of, you know, it's a bit late. But I, but I think the experiments will work, and that's fine. But I would say if I could just have the confidence to basically be even more bashful and um, fearless than I was, I would 
just maybe have done that a little bit more earlier. I really love cutting across the disciplines. Um, I just wish I'd done it earlier. <laughs> well, Lee, I'm thankful you did it at all. Some people never do it. And I'm so glad to know you and we're connected to you on Clubhouse and Twitter, wherever else we're connected. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing some of your insight, your foresight into our most important questions, the biggest issues in cosmology, in physics, in biology, in chemistry, and beyond. Uh, thank you for sharing that with my audience. And thank you for being a friend of science. Thank you very much for having me on. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.